0: Hey, She's hip. Heavy heavy, heavy,
1: heavy, heavy. Hello, Georges Collinet with you on Afro Pop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. Over the past years, we've been producing web-exclusive podcasts to accompany some of our favorite episodes. And this week, we figured that we would give you a taste of what has been going on online. So, welcome to our podcast special. Afropop's podcast now includes full versions of all of our latest shows, plus all sorts of exciting extras. It's the best way yet to stay connected to what's going on at Afropop. You can subscribe on iTunes at pri.org or at www.afropop.org slash podcast. To kick things off, we have a podcast produced by Banning Air as part of our hip-deep exploration of Afrofunk in Ghana. The program tells the story of how soul, jazz, funk, and high life were combined in 1960s Accra to produce a groundbreaking musical style. However, during our time in Ghana, Banning also stumbled across a fascinating slice of forgotten musical history that just happens to feature the soul brother number one. So let's hear it. James Brown, Geraldo Pino, and Fela Kuti in Ghana. Take it away, Banning.
2: Get the people. Get pass the hitman!
3: The common thread that runs through the Afro-funk Afrobeat story is the astounding impact of the godfather of soul, James Brown, in West Africa. Brown famously toured Nigeria in 1970. In our program on Ebo Taylor and Afrofunk, Ghanaian highlife arranger and Felikuti's good friend, Stan Planche, claims that Brown was a flop in Nigeria. Well, I suppose it depends on where you sat, but Abo Taylor sure didn't remember it that
4: way. When he was in Nigeria, every Nigerian was mad. Hey, you know, like the real guy, the Jesus Christ you see? And I've never forgotten how exciting, uh, even, if, even if he sings, if I rule the world, you see, it's a ballad, but the way he sings it, you see that it's an African, there's something burning in him and it, it takes you back to the north. And the north spreads from the east coast to the west coast. That belt of people there are real suffering from the climate and vegetation. It's not easy for them, you know, when they talk about their blues. The similarity of James and the people up there, you you can feel the same thing. If it was a politician, he would win all the election.
3: Ebo and many veteran musicians in Ghana hear James Brown's vocal intensity as an echo of the anguished Sahel region of North and West Africa. This idea is part of Ghana's local funk lore. But a somewhat younger Ghanaian producer, Panji Anoff, says Brown's music had a more general
5: appeal for West Africans. He had these call and response songs, say it loud, I'm black and proud. So it's he calls and you respond. Africans always want to participate in the music. We don't just want to dance. We want to clap, we want to sing, we want to feel the music in every last bone of our body. And James Brown makes that, he invites you. Fela is the same, Fela invites you to participate in the music. I can't listen to Fela without dancing or laughing or smiling or feeling sad. I can't listen to Fela's music without it conjuring some kind of strong emotion in me somehow, somewhere.
3: Now the guy who brought James Brown's sound to more West Africans than anybody was actually Geraldo Pino of Sierra Leone. Kino came to Ghana in 1967 with his band The Heartbeats, and they spent three years rocking audiences all over Ghana, and then went on to Nigeria, Everybody remembers Pino's channeling of James Brown, but listen to Francis Fuster, the drummer and musical director of the Heartbeats. He witnessed Pino's evolution from the Heartbeats Maracas player to the band's guiding visionary, financier, and frontman.
6: So we played all the rock and roll songs, we covered all the Congolese stuff from Congo at the time, we covered highlights from Ghana, we played everything. But mostly we focused on people like Cliff Richards, Elvis Presley, Louis Jordan. We went into the Boogie Woogie and all that kind of stuff. But the band was such a talented, versatile band that we could play almost everything and sound authentic in every area. 1966 when we got to Liberia. That's when the James Brown, because the Liberia was a very American colony, and all the American music was in Liberia. By 1966, James Brown had taken the world. And so Pino picked up James Brown and he could do that very well. And he got better and better and he got bigger and bigger with it. You know, so he became the James Brown of Africa
5: at that time. One of the best gimmicks any live band could have at the time was James Brown, because James Brown was just the dominant force in this soul music which had just come and turned everything upside down. You see, in those days, people had heard James Brown's music, but they might have never seen his image before. So, in many ways, the millions of people or the hundreds of thousands of people who had been mesmerized by James Brown's music Their hunger was satisfied by Geraldo Pino, who, I mean, basically took a lot of James Brown and just did it in his own way, but his own way was very, very, very very similar to James Brown. But it was also indigenous or different in other ways.
4: His band was of the same size like James Brown. They were using a keyboard, and they were using two guitars, and they have equipment to boost the sound, you know, the technical aspect of it. Actually, called, not the music aspect of it, but the technical. So he became
6: very popular and he was playing James Brown songs. Pino was way ahead. He read everything about music and the equipment. In fact, one time I remember he traveled to Italy just to get the best equipment he could get. And a fella actually learned how to make his band sound good from Geraldo Pino, really. And he learned a lot of stuff from us. We had good equipment, the best. He saw to
7: that. So he earned his position that way. Geraldo Pino and the heartbeat. I mean, Ghana hasn't seen equipment like that. The impact was great. They had the best of girls, the best of gigs, and all that. They took the same thing to Nigeria, and they worried Fela with that. That's Jedu play Ambole, another
3: key figure in the move from high life to jazz and funk. Here's his take
7: on why Fela came to Ghana in the first place. Fela had back from England. And he was struggling because uh, Nigerians weren't understanding the format that he was bringing, you know, because they they could feel more outside influence, you know, in the highlight because of the instrumentations and all that. So, fella was finding it tough in Nigeria. So he told himself, man, I think I better go to Ghana because he felt that he'll be understood. And yes, Ghanaians understood it because he came and met progressive bands like the kind of style that he was doing, you know. So it's like a jazz highlife. You know, that, you know, married together. You know, and Fela came with that. And he fitted in here. He told the Nigerian musicians, marriage, want no music, go to Ghana. When J. Dublé Ambole says that Geraldo Pino worried Fela,
3: he's voicing a common perception. That's exactly the way Pino comes across in the Broadway show, Fela. He's a kind of rival to the Afrobeat founder. But Francis Fuster, who knew both men well, remembers it a bit differently.
6: Well, Fela came to see us play. he had heard in Nigeria about this band from Sierra Leone. He traveled from Nigeria to come and see this band. And when he came, he fell in love with the band, you know. Said hello, and you have a great man. And then, then I said, Well, that, that's Geraldo Pino. I introduced him, and they spoke, and they became great friends too. They were, they were good friends. They had similar ideas going in different directions. But Fela became one of our greatest fans for many years, followed us around. And...
3: At the same time, Fela's aim in Ghana was to play his own music, specifically to break his jazzy highlife band Kula Lobitos. Highlife and Afro-jazz arranger Stan Plange remembers Fela's first visit to Ghana, around 1966. It was trumpeter Zeal
8: One of the Ohuru
3: dance band who introduced
8: Fela to Accra. So Zeal brought Fela to Accra, by then Fela had got his band. The Kula Lubitos were playing high Life from jazzy funk type of highlife. Fela wanted to tour Accra with his band. He was coming to book nine clubs where he would play. So I went around with Fela, Apollo Theater, Lido Nightclub, Ringway Hotel, Star Hotel, so many places. Then Fela came down with his group. I think they stayed in the Ringway Hotel. We started playing. But Fela wasn't popular in those days, nobody knows Fela.
3: Which of course meant he wasn't making money. Stan Planche formed a lasting friendship with Fela when he offered to put up the 10 members of Kula Lobitos at the Ohuru dance band's house. Stan even surrendered his own room to Fela.
8: Because you can't stay with Fela in a room. He brings in women anytime, always. He goes and comes with another one. He goes and comes with another one. So anytime he comes, I vacate the room for him and go and stay at my family house. That's why we became very, very good friends. When I knew Fela, Fela wasn't even smoking cigarette, wasn't even drinking any alcohol. He drinks only Fanta. He'll tell you, I want Fanta orange. He does not drink, does not smoke, not even cigarettes.
3: Well, as we know, that would change, and so would Fela's musical fortunes in Ghana. He eventually settled in at Faisal Helwani's Napoleon Club, where he met Hugh Masekela, among others. J. Blay Ambole remembers this
7: as an incredibly exciting time for music in Accra. There were so many clubs in Accra, apart from Faisal's Napoleon Club. Even before Faisal's Napoleon Club, there were so many clubs like Tiptoe Nightclub, Lido Nightclub. Metropole, Sea View, uh, Watto, so many clubs. And most of these clubs had bands performing there. Sometimes you can see three bands playing at a club, one club, in one night. So when one band's finished playing, it goes to another club. This was in the 60s, late part of 60s. the 60s. band was there, Modiniers band was there, Joe Kelly's band was there, Africana Rhythmus, The Dominant Seven, Paramount Eight, and these were all progressive bands. This was the time that Fella came to Ghana.
6: Fella was playing trumpet at the time. Most people don't know that he played the trumpet for many years. But he was a great trumpeter, an amazing trumpeter. Interestingly, that's not
3: at all how Stan Plant recalls it.
8: He was them playing trumpet trumpet was his instrument when he attended Trinity College London. But to be honest, he wasn't a good trumpet player. Fela wasn't good on the trumpet. His embouchure wasn't that strong. He was better on the saxophone than the trumpet. <laughs> well, have a listen and judge for yourself.
3: The thing that really caused a riff with Fela's friends in Ghana was when he started singing political songs after 1970. Francis Fuster told me he basically lost his friendship with Fela over this. After Geraldo Pino's band broke up, Francis and Fela used to hang out in Lagos, checking out bands, turning on to Latin music, and talking about everything. But once Francis told Fela he was making a mistake to sing politics, all that came to an end. Here's how Ebo Taylor experienced Phala's shift to being a political singer.
4: We've been friends in England, so you know he's, he knows that I'm always in the alive groove. So he sees me in Lagos. I he say, hey, Ebo, come, let's play some alive, you know. And uh, he thinks yeah, we are all doing well, but when I tell him your music is too political, you're talking about politics instead of putting the emphasis on the music. He thinks uh, I'm not paying attention to my environment, what is going on. You know, he thinks I've taken life easily and, you know, he thinks um, uh, I'm one of the people who subscribe to the oppressors' thing, but I thought, you know, it makes so much enemies for him. I had a workshop at a Walmart uh, two years ago, and the GBC interviewer asked me Why is your music, do you keep politics and things like that out of your music? I said, it makes enemies for my music, so my music should embrace all, bring peace. They cheered for about 10 minutes, I was surprised. That that was the time I knew how deep fella had
8: gone to make enemies because of his music. Fella, I got to know that if he's made up his mind to do something, you can't change him and he better stay out of his private life. You know, Fela's music changed when he started this political thing. Fela's best music was before he changed to go into politics. When he became political, the quality of his music, the generator went down. Because he wasn't interested in the tune again. He was interested in either blasting government or something with his words. I don't blame him for doing that either. That's his choice. and.
4: It makes his music sometimes very powerful, you know, so I don't blame him. I don't say, I don't say, hey, know what you are doing is wrong, but I say, hey, watch out. These people are, you know, out for you. You know, when he was released from uh, the prison, I was the first person he called when he came out. They said, tell here you know, you know, I'm here, i you know. But he, he never cared two hoots about what happens to him. They beat him, they, they want to kill him, and he doesn't care. He will still come out and do the same thing. I don't blame him because of the nature of the Nigerian politics. And I, I don't blame him because uh, that's his style. This is the Yoruba. They are not afraid to die today, they, they don't care. Once he thinks he's right, he's right forever.
7: But to me, Fela is one of the greatest African musicians. You know, to be able to have your own sound, your own interpretation, your own everything that, when they hear, they know that this is Fela.
5: I think it's an institution, you know, by itself. So to somebody, Fela is a fool. To somebody, Fela is the bravest person they've ever come across. But they might both actually be describing the same act. It's just how they interpret something. But any human being who can draw such opposite emotions from two different people with the same deed is interesting. Amen.
3: Panchi Anoff. Fela is nothing if not interesting.
1: Wow, what a fascinating story. Well, next up, we hear from another legend of Afropop, the one and only Angélique Kidjo. When Afropop's Morgan Greenstreet produced a program exploring how Benin's religious music was transformed into polyrhythmic pop, we were excited to hear that Angélique Kijo had just finished an album returning to many of these traditional sounds. The album was called Eve, and man, what a knockout. Eve is a tribute to the strong African women. And this podcast, available on iTunes or Afropop.org, explores its roots. <laughs> Angélique Kicho is the reigning queen of Afropop and Benin's first lady of song. Afropop Worldwide has followed Angélique since she got her start and we're always excited to hear what she's up to. Her latest album, Eve, is dedicated to her mother and celebrates African women. Eve features women's choirs from Kenya and Benin, and many of the songs return to the traditional Vaudun music featured in Benin Transforming Traditions. Our senior producer, Banning Air, spoke to Angélique about the inspiration for the album at her home in Brooklyn, New York.
9: doesn't matter how poor the African women are, They're always elegant, and I wanted to celebrate that. And that's where the whole album started from. For me to start in Kenya, to go to my country, to those women that my mother, my grandmother, and all the women, basically, in Benin and Africa, through their um, their mentoring, their examples, their resilience, have taught me to be who I am today.
1: The song we're hearing in the background Kamoshu features a women's choir from Angelique's village, Gadome. It is a traditional Yoruba song used in ancestor worship, which Angélique has reworked with her unique touch.
9: It's an offering song, Kamuishu, in the worshiping the ancestors, because we believe that somebody passed away from our family is only the body that is gone, that the memory that we celebrate keeps them alive. And there is once a year a party where the spirit can embody somebody else, living spirit to speak to
1: us. Now let's hear another tune, Ebile, featuring the Chronos Quartet.
2: On y a l'odo les wababadi l'homme. On y a l'odo les Bamba, Oh, wa bamba.
9: that Ebile song with the Kangwe Brass Band percussion player is such a typical song, such a typical rhythm. I mean, Benin is not known for the harmony as Mali is known, but the rhythm in Benin is is sick.
1: We couldn't agree more. I
9: mean, we have so much different drums. It's ridiculous. I don't know any country in Africa that has so many drums like Benin. It's just like, forget it. So... I wanted to be stripped like that. I wanted those two things to meet. And when I met the Kronos Quartet, I say, I'm waiting for the day we're going to play this song in Benin. And then they're going to go, what in the world is that? Who's that guy? Who are those guys? What is that?
1: Ah, I'm sure it will be quite a hit. Well, we'll leave you with one of the most powerful new Angelique Kidjo songs, simply entitled Orisha, the Yoruba word for deity. Here's Angelique.
9: Orisha is a musician music. It's just about celebrating and power. What I'm saying is that people don't have any knowledge about the religion of the Orishas, about the Vodou religion. They only see what happened through Hollywood, and they don't know anything about it. We worship elements. That's all it is about. And I'm saying that we want no trouble with nobody. We do nobody, no harm. We're just here to prove. To help you groove and get onto your life, to deal with your life in hard time and in good time. That's all Urisha is about.
1: Amen. Enjoy the music. And you're listening to the podcast special on Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. And as I mentioned before, Afropop has recently relaunched its podcast series and you can now download full versions of every new Afropop episode. Not to mention bonus web-exclusive stories on our podcast. So subscribe today and be sure to stay in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Georges Collinet. And you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. (laughs)
0: <laughs> you see I'm in the San Francisco, I say I see my friend Bancho, he say hey, once in the day somebody got to know you know, I say yeah, <laughs> When the back of the side of the side of the asses, away like, we go, we sing this whole country song like this, <laughs> Chicken in the Corn, on the corn can grow, mama, hey, when Chicken in the Corn, so the corn can grow, hey,
10: Chicken in the corn, corn, corn is the song the that relaunched Brushy One String's career. Hey, Uploaded to YouTube in March of 2013, it's since racked up almost 5 million views. It's not bad for an unvarnished single-camera video that simply shows the singer confidently playing with a group of his friends. It's got one long cut. Okay, so it wouldn't be too hard to dismiss Brushy as yet another internet gimmick. After all, the whole thing seems a bit implausible. A one-string guitar player from Jamaica who rockets to YouTube fame on the back of a song about chickens and a friend named Poncho? What are the odds that this is actually going to be good?
0: Life consists of you like. Open heaven, such as a beautiful sky.
10: Brushy is very good Far from being a novelty His songs and the style in which he plays them Reflect the often unacknowledged breadth of Jamaica's musical culture As well as his own singular vision I got a chance to speak with Brushy in his hotel room Before he performed at this year's Global Fest To start with, I asked him the obvious So you are the the king of the one string guitar Definitely and it's an amazing, it's an amazing instrument. <laughs> uh, can you tell us about how you started
11: playing it? Well, it was a vision that came to reality. I went out one day to a party to sing, and no one wanted to give me the microphone. So I grabbed the microphone away, and uh, when I grabbed it, I started singing. and the people were like, yeah, yeah, you can sing, yeah. And the way I feel, like they were neglecting me, so I put the mic down and I went away to my house. I was talking like to the God above, oh, I want to sing better than my daddy, because my daddy is the late great Freddie MacKay. My mom used to sing with Tina Turner do backing up singing. Her name is Beverly Faster. So I was saying to my God, Oh, I want to be a better singer than my parents. And then I see the stars start running in the skies. And I went off to my bed. Early in the morning I get a vision with a little short man with a big guitar like mine saying, I should have this guitar. And I said, No, I don't want your guitar. I already have one and the strings are broken. And he said, Oh, but you can play this guitar. I take it from him. When I look, it was one string on the guitar. So I start to bang it, bang it, and I'm getting some rock and roll and some blues sound. And then the man become three stars. And he bank. and the voice from the stars says, Take care of the guitar, and the guitar will take care of you. I wake in the morning, I begin to practice. And I didn't catch nothing until the evening I found out there was a scale and a guitar. And I was like, Margaret, 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 I found the scale and the one string, music is on it. And she was like, ah, dream do come true, keep practicing. And in the evening about three o'clock, I hear this song playing on the radio which is, was uh Sugar Mine Mr DC. First song I played my guitar. i come
0: coming from my country. With my bag of Kali. up Boko pana DC. He want to own me. He said don't you run now, you man, cause you cannot escape. And if you sleep you will slide. And if you run, you can't hide. While I said, no, DC, don't you touch my sensi? No, DC.
10: And that was the first
11: song I learned to play on my guitar.
10: Playing a one-string guitar really, playing a guitar at all, which seemed to place Brushy in a world entirely separate from the dance hall popular in Jamaica during the 80s and 90s. Still, he always worked within the mainstream, recording over studio rhythms and using his music to battle like any other singer or DJ. Brushy explained how this approach led to his second hit song.
11: The second song I wrote was a DJ song. It was about uh, a DJ in Jamaica. He was singing about his girl, gone and leave him. Was like Papa son, you become a Christian now? It was
0: Lord, me can't take it no more. Give me back the girl when we did that before. Lord, me can't take it no more. Cry, up, cry
11: up. And I was like, wow, what's a wicked hit? Any man counteract that song gonna get a number one. And I was in my yard and I was thinking, how can I counteract a song like that? Till I hear a song in my head. Remember our old time song they used to sing in Jamaica? Man do laugh, a yes. Um man doppy keke keng ken ken. And the phrase came in my head and I said, Wow, it's a good phrase. And then I began to say, Sangyal Ganaha, yes. Can we daddy brush it with the one string bun? Sangalgana ha yes. Can we daddy brush it with the one string ban." And that's how I get my second sign. Become a hit also. And after that, that guy become a Christian. He's a minister now.
10: <laughs> Brushy spent the early 90s recording tracks for small Jamaican labels like Roof International. And you can actually still find his early 45s on high-priced collector websites. These releases were popular in Jamaica and featured Brushy toasting over dance beats.
0: Original mango time. Brushy one string one more time. Watch me not start. Mingala mangoes, mangoes, everything.
10: He was even successful enough to tour Japan, where reggae was then enjoying a massive wave of popularity, and performed in the enormous Sunsplash concert there. Grushy grew up poor, and he never learned to read as a child. Unfortunately, this allowed unscrupulous business people to take advantage of him, derailing his career just when it seemed about to take off, Determined to become literate, Brushy moved to London to live with his mother and go back to school. Despite putting his musical ambitions on hold, Brushy kept writing. He explains how his song, Walking Dreamer, was based on his time in England.
11: The third song I did was uh, Walking Dreamer. That, that, that song is about my mum. Because when I go to England and realize my mum, she, she wakes in the night and she walks around our room, not knowing that she's walking around and talking. So one night she wakes and I was listening to her and watching her and I realized she didn't wake, she was walking in her sleep. So I went around and at the time I couldn't read, so I practiced and listened to myself and keep my words. And I wake up, I realized I was singing the song. I know this lady, her name is Miss Beverly. Every night she go to bed, she are a walking dreamer. <laughs> <laughs> the song become a hit again.
0: Miss Beverly, ooh, I know this lady, her name is Miss Beverly, every night she gone to bed, she been walking in her dreams, yes I know this lady, her name is Miss Beverly, Every night she's gone to bed She's been talking in her dream She's a walking dreamer Yes, she's a talking dreamer She's a walking dreamer She walks and talks in her dream Yes, she's a walking dreamer Oh, she's a talking dreamer yeah, yeah, she's a walking dreamer. She walks and talks in her dream. Bee, don't pull, don't beat up, light up, blow, bath, that, 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 play, that, pull, 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 bath, that, play, Yeah, she's a walking dreamer. Now she's a talking dreamer. Who has she?
2: She wags the little
10: Brushy had another close call with success after returning from England, when he made it to the finals of Rising Stars, a popular talent show in Jamaican television. Despite finishing fourth, nothing followed and Brushy returned to obscurity. This kind of up and down career isn't uncommon in Jamaican music. A small industry in which who you know can easily be more important than how you play. His success on TV had convinced Brushy that the one string was an image that worked, and he abandoned the larger groups and dancehall styles of his earlier music. Still, Brushy had returned to hustling on the streets when he met the director who would restart his career.
11: I was like, hey, white man, me sing your song and you give me $20. And he was like, what you say? I said, yeah, man, me sing your song and you give me $20, man because I was hustling, you know, and he was a tourist, so I, I think I could make a buck from him. And I take my guitar out, and then he looked at it and said, what, can that play? And I was like, yes, I can play. Then I began to sing Chicken and the Corn in the video. When he went away and came back, I didn't recognize him. He said to me, oh, I think I should take it to Argentina and let us do a album there. And then if nothing, we go to America.
10: Brush's experiences drive his music and his songs drawn everything from the extreme poverty of his youth to the many struggles of his long career. Talking to him, it seems as if music has been a vital outlet for all of this, allowing him to transform real suffering into something that transcends personal circumstance.
11: I always remember when I used to cry about listening to radio all the time. I used to be sad mo- mostly when he comes to Sundays, when everybody go to church and holding their kids and giving them ice cream, and I was like sitting, looking. Everybody eating ice cream, I'm eating nothing. Everybody get a kiss, I get none. Everybody dressed going to church, I'm around the church back peeping inside. Because my grandma ain't treating me right. My mom is not there and my dad is not there, so I'm like, I'm like a fly around the place. I just fly, pitch here, pitch there. <laughs> and now I've got life for myself, man. So I'm just living, trying to do the right thing. Trying to sing the right song, you know. I I don't want to sing songs that would never live. I want to sing songs that my great 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 grandkid would come and say, "That's my great great granddad." I want my songs to live forever, man. But I try to base my songs on real life, real real life that everyone can relate to because. um, I'm not into fantasy stuff, man. I'm not into it. Um, I'm into more reality. I, I'm like... i into more preaching more than singing. <laughs> I use music to preach. Yeah, that's what I'm doing.
10: The thing that sets Brushy apart is his ability to create a genuine connection with his listeners. The arrangements of his songs may be simple, but it's a well-honed simplicity that carries with it an intense emotional impact. It's something that great Jamaican music has always been famous for and Brushy, for all of his idiosyncrasies, certainly continues that tradition.
0: Oh, sweet lady, I've been watching you so long now, bang. girl, you take my love when you give it all away, baby, you make my life in strain and misery, because you give to me the gray. My blue she cheats on my love and give to me the gray in my blue. Listen now, baby. Oh, joy, you remember? Girl, Go the first time we just met you. Yeah. Ah, nice and sweet Never yeah, just to be. But now, she take away all that beautiful love from me. And I'll bring my life into the same oh, all misery. Because you give on me the gray in my blue. You know what you done to me. It dipped me the gray in my blue. Listen up, baby. I've got your name.
1: Well, for the final podcast featured on today's show, we take you to the streets of Egypt. Afropop was lucky enough to travel there during the relative peace of the summer, directly after the often violent unrest of the Arab Spring. The five episodes we produced from that trip were some of our all-time favorites. You can check them out on afropop.org. And remember, if you want to hear more of what we've been playing today, subscribe to the Afropop Worldwide podcast. And now, The Ecstasy of a Sufi mullid, hosted by Banning Air.
3: A lot of people we met in Egypt told us the country's traditional music has fallen into a state of decline. Lacking support from media and industry, it's often reduced to tourist entertainment, or else local ritual appreciated only by a dwindling audience of old-timers. But there are exceptions. Ahmed al-Maghrabi, director of a small traditional music venue in Cairo called Mekan, noted
10: one. The big best seller till today is yesing to him. Not Amr Diab. Diab is an image that you see in the TV. In the reality, there is another people. That image sold in the TV can make a lot of money through private concerts, through weddings. So if you have the title of the best, you know, singer, huh? Everybody will pay you much more than this sheikh. But the reality is, Yassine Tuhami, he has, I think, till now, 165 albums. He sells like 30, 40,000 cassettes per month. If any of these big stars just sold 60,000 for one album, it's a big deal for them.
3: So the biggest seller of music recordings in Egypt is not pop icon Amr Jab. Rather, the Sufi Sheikh Yasin
2: al-Tuhami.
3: Now, I can't confirm Dr. al-Maghrabi's sales figures, but I did meet the great munshid, or religious singer, Yassin El tuhami It was the final night of a Sufi saint celebration, a moulid, in the Upper Egypt town Abu Tig. Yassin El tuhami is saying he actually had little interest in recording initially. He felt exploited by the Idaphone label in the 80s and stopped recording altogether until 1990. 95 when he created his own label named for the Sufi poet Omar ibn el-farid but as much as you're apt to hear one of those recordings wafting over market stalls anywhere in Egypt the real place to experience this singer is on the big night the final night of a
4: mullid and <laughs>
3: Yaseen al-Tahami says that a moulid celebrates the birth of a saint, usually someone from the family of the prophet Muhammad. Yaseen has been singing at moulids since he was 20. Back then, almost 50 years ago, they were mostly attended by older people. Adults are still the majority, but these days, Yaseen is seeing a lot more 20-somethings and teenagers at moulids, and that's encouraging. During our time in Egypt, We also found that young musicians, including rappers, jazz composers, and electronic music pioneers are all currently creating new work inspired by this ancient celebration. That's Arabian Nights, featuring the singer Mahmoud el and produced by Club Wreckers. But let's back up a little and talk about how this particular Sufi event, the Mulad, became such a big deal in Egypt. Here's Michael Frischkoff, scholar of Egyptian music and associate director of the Canadian Centre for Ethnomusicology at the University of Alberta.
12: One of the ways that Islam spread around the world was through the Sufi orders, into West Africa, East Africa, Southeast Asia, everywhere. The result was that people were Sufi all over the place and they didn't necessarily even have to call themselves Sufi, that's just what Islam was. Islam was permeated with this. And in Egypt in particular, what you would find is that a lot of big celebrations had a kind of Sufi tinge without being the ritual of a specific order, and the biggest occasion for this was the festivals at which a saint's birthday was celebrated. They called it the Mawlid, Or Moolid in colloquial Egyptian Arabic. This was
3: popular Islam, people's Islam. But with the rise of Wahhabism, a fundamentalist movement that started in the late 18th century, Sufism came under attack. Sufi shrines were destroyed all over the Muslim world. By the 1920s, this rejection of Sufism was picked up by Egypt's fledgling Muslim brothers.
12: From that point on, there's a kind of a reformist attack on many of the Sufi orders, many of the practices. You know, this Sufism has just sort of inculcated laziness and mysticism which isn't productive and it's not leading Muslims anywhere and I think colonialism itself was a big factor in all this that you know the Muslim countries are all backwards and we need to wake up and part of our problem is is Sufism that's part of the thing that's been you know, keeping us back we need to move forward but despite many
3: efforts right up to the present no one has succeeded in stopping Egypt's moulids.
12: the biggest ones are attended by millions and go on for two weeks. Now, depending on the importance of the saint, the size can vary dramatically. If it's just a very local saint, they might have a mullah just for one night. But for the biggest saints, and especially the so-called ahl al-Bait, the ahl are the family of the prophet. A number of the ahl al-Bait have shrines in Egypt. So those are the very big ones. They're going to be starting their celebrations about two weeks before the actual big night, the Layla Kabirah, which is the culmination, the climax of the festival.
6: Allah, Allah.
12: That's what we experienced at Abu Tig, al-Layla
3: al-Kabira, the big night. This mulid was in celebration of al Sultan al-Fargal, a religious scholar who lived some 300 years ago. We dined at the home of Sheikh Yassin's son, Mahmoud al-Tuhami, who began singing publicly at age 13. Mahmoud was to be the featured munshid for the big night, and he escorted us to the scene at Abu Tig, What we found there was out of this world. A town square festooned with colored fabrics, lights, speaker towers reaching blocks in every direction. Even the enormous minarets of the town mosque were draped in strings of colored lights. And despite the late hour, the place was bustling with energy and
12: commerce. Businessmen get involved. They often donate lights and tents and so on. It also gives them a little bit of visibility. But they'll they'll fund it as a religious duty, a religious donation. Some of the Sufi orders will also stake out areas. There's something called the khidma. The khidma means literally service. There's a little tent providing shield against the sun, and they'll serve tea and coffee and other beverages, hot, to everybody, free. You just have to come in and they'll they'll serve you. There's a lot of people selling things. Of course, anywhere you have a crowd, you have people selling um, religious items, books, you can buy incense, you can buy perfumes. You can buy tapes and CDs and MP3s and all that kind of thing. There's also people selling candy and snack foods. People bring their kids, they bring the family, they go out. It's a festival, it's a carnival. But a carnival in trance. On a stage
3: high above the crowd, three percussionists, a violinist, and a guy playing the Egyptian kawala, a reed flute, sat on either side of the singer. The Kawala can play in two octaves at once, and not to be outdone, the violinist was feeding his signal through an electronic octave pedal, making his sound that much bigger. Mahmoud Al-Tuhami sang into a cluster of microphones, each one connected to a separate power amp, creating a huge sound with stadium rock, impact, and transcendent beauty. People in Cairo told us we would not be safe at a mulud. We were the only Westerners among this crowd of thousands, but we experienced nothing but warmth and hospitality. On the other hand, Michael Frischkoff, a veteran of many mullets, said that while they are generally safe, things occasionally
12: get out of hand. It's just absolutely packed. There's some danger of youth kind of running amok a bit, crashing into people and in some cases pickpocketing and so on. So there's some danger especially for women in the very, very dentist night.
3: This explains why the few women we saw were mostly watching from windows above the town square. In front of the stage, tight formations of men were rocking back and forth in a spiritual movement and chant called zikr, or remembering God. As for the music that was triggering this response, it's complex. Like a Quranic reciter, a munshid has to memorize lengthy texts, though in this case the texts are Sufi poetry, not the Quran. Also like a reciter, the munshid doesn't sing set melodies, but rather must improvise. The musicians sometimes play passages of composed music, often snatches from famous recordings by artists like Umm Kothum and Halim Hafez. But the singer is making it up as he goes, relying on deep knowledge of Arabic music theory, the system of musical modes, or maqam. We asked Mahmoud Al-Tuhami how he does it. During the
4: music we take the from the language.
3: Mahmoud says,
7: in the music of Sufism,
3: the melody is always derived from the spirit of the word. The word comes first, and its spirit informs the improvised melody and the emotion within it. Sufis rely on language as a fundamental of the faith. The melody is secondary to the word. Well, that may be, but for a novice like myself, the melody The sound and the atmosphere of collective exhilaration that carried this performance almost to sunrise without a single pause were quite enough. This was the emotional high point of a month spent in Egypt and an experience I wouldn't trade for the world.
1: Major support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Endowments for the Arts that believes a great nation deserves great arts and from PRI Public Radio International affiliate stations around the US and thank you for supporting your public radio station. Additional support for Afropop Worldwide comes from BAM presenting non-such records at BAM a music festival featuring Yusundur, Tumani Jabate, Roquette Raore, Caetano Veloso, and other non such artists. September 9 through 28, tickets at BAM.org. That's B A M.org. And from WOMEX, the showcase, trade fair, and conference presenting world, roots, and ethnic music in Santiago de Compostela, Galicia, Spain. October 22nd to 26. More info at womex.com. And visit Afropop.org slash podcast or search for Afropop Worldwide on iTunes to subscribe to our podcast. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and production for this program by Banning Air, Morgan Greenstreet and Sam Backer. Our chief audio engineer and co-producer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Mike Kaplan and Stéphanie Lebeau. Benning Air edits our website, afropop.org. Our development director is Ivana Bond. Our producer for new media is Sam Baker. And I'm Georges Colinet. PRI Public Radio International.